Hey everyone, so I got a new computer, or computer as we say in the Boston area, and this is my first time recording with it, so fingers crossed. Yeah, I believe I mentioned on social media a week or two ago that the Mac I used to record the show suddenly broke down. I was halfway through a Patreon bonus episode, took a brief break, sat back down, woke my computer up and the screen was purple. I'd never seen that before. So I rebooted it and got the dreaded white screen of death. Tried the usual bag of tricks, safe mode, recovery mode, making a bootable thumb drive, but nothing worked. Finally, I tried removing the hard drive so I could reformat it and put it back in, because according to a diagnostic I ran, the hardware was supposedly fine, so it may have been some glitchy software thing like a kernel panic. Kernel panic sounds like a really unfortunate G.I. Joe character. Unfortunately, I accidentally broke one of the connections on the logic board while trying to take the thing out, and that was it. I had had enough. So I sold the thing on eBay for parts and bought a refurbished Mac Mini uh, directly from Apple, and it finally arrived. Refurbished and the specs are inferior to the machine it's replacing, and it was still almost $600. But so far so good. It seems pretty darn speedy, despite only having half the RAM of the last computer. Then again, it has a modern processor, and the last one was a 2011 model, so pretty long in the tooth. And I'm sure it probably, you know, slowed down with age. But enough computer talk. Apologies to any of my listeners who find tech boring. And I'm not quite sure how to transition to this next topic. It was so harrowing at the time that I almost dedicated an entire episode to it. But the more time that goes by, the more I just kind of look back on it and laugh. Although in fairness to myself, I think even immediately after the event, when I was planning on doing an episode about it, I found myself approaching it with a sense of humor. But I nevertheless still consider it to easily be one of the worst nights of my life. But I think the worst night of my life is still the time about five years ago or more where I had a really bad pot freak out at a Christmas party. If you're a longtime listener, then you've probably heard me talk about this. I did a whole episode about it. I've never really been a big pothead, but I've always had friends who are into pot. I've had a couple of really good pot experiences, I think, with like wax or shatter, as the kids call it. And, uh, you know, whatever strain it was, it made me feel really euphoric and energized. But usually pot just makes me feel even more introverted than I naturally am or paranoid or dopey. But nevertheless, almost like some peer pressure thing or not wanting to be impolite, I would often take a toke when the joint or bowl would come around. And it was never really a big deal until that aforementioned Christmas party. One thing that may have made me vulnerable going in is that at that time I was trying to taper off of an SSRI I was on, specifically Prozac or Fluoxetine, the generic name. I'd been taking it for at least a decade for chronic migraines and yes, depression. So my chemical balance may have already been, you know, a bit off because I was in the process of withdrawing from a drug that alters brain chemistry that I'd been on for years. And it's pretty crazy how quickly it happened. I had only been at the party for maybe a half an hour or so. I hadn't even been there long enough to finish my first drink. 
When a girl at the party who I'm friends with, really nice person, she didn't intend for any of this to happen, and she felt really bad after, even though technically it wasn't her fault, as I'll explain. She broke out a bong and some pot, and then this guy we know with this kind of mischievous smile whips out his own supply and says, let's do this instead. I forget the term, I don't know if it's keef or whatever, but it's like a potent combination of leftover bits of different strains or something like that. Actually, let me look it up. Wikipedia says, Keith, K-I-E-F. It sounds like someone with a speech impediment trying to say Keith. Anyway, sometimes transliterated as Keith, K-E-E-F, also known as quote-unquote dust and quote-unquote chief, a.k.a. cannabis crystals, among other names, refers to the pure and clean collection of loose cannabis trichomes, which are accumulated by being sifted from cannabis flowers or buds with a mesh screen or sieve. And apologies to anyone who actually has a speech impediment. Ironically, as a kid, I used to struggle with the TH sound. And then MedicalMarijuanaInc.com says, Keef is the name commonly used to describe the harvested, sticky, powder-like crystals found on marijuana flower that can produce a more intense high. Tell me about it. Collected and used for thousands of years as a way to consume cannabis. Keef, or Keef, K-E-E-F, is a highly concentrated form of cannabis that collects the most potent part of the marijuana flower as a lightly colored cannabinoid-filled powder. Because Keef packs a much bigger level of cannabinoids than cannabis flower, it's an ideal option if you're looking to increase your cannabinoid intake or just want a versatile cannabis product that you can use a few different ways. Okay, but anyway, I think he was carrying it in something that almost looked like a little round case that you'd keep your retainers in. Um, so they load the stuff into the bong instead. And despite how many times I had smoked pot socially, I had strangely, you know, hadn't had that much experience with bongs. But somehow, to my detriment, I managed to take a perfect or at least a really powerful bong hit. And it's always blown my mind how quickly pot takes effect. You're breathing in the smoke and almost instantaneously you start to feel the psychoactive effects. It seemed like seconds or minutes after inhaling that massive bong hit, all of a sudden my mouth became uncomfortably dry, and I complain about how the amitriptyline I take for my headaches gives me dry mouth. Well, that's nothing compared to what I experienced from that bong hit. My mouth was dry like the Sahara. I snuck off to the kitchen to get some water, and I remember also for some stupid reason, I tried eating some crackers I found there. Maybe I thought it would help stimulate salivation or something. Thing, but my mouth was so dry I couldn't even chew or swallow. It was literally like my mouth was as dry as the crackers I was trying to eat. It was crazy. And then the paranoia started setting in. I think what Hunter S. Thompson and others, was it Ginsburg or Burroughs, maybe all of them, I don't know, but what they referred to as the quote-unquote fear, that crazy all-consuming paranoia that certain drugs can induce. And I've done acid, mushrooms, and had some bad trips, but this was the worst. And I remember I snuck into the bathroom and I had that weird paranoid feeling which makes no sense when you think about it in hindsight. This feeling that you can't let anyone find out how effed up you are, you know, for some reason, like the world will end if they do. So you sneak around trying to avoid human contact so you won't be found out. So I snuck into the bathroom and I'm looking in the mirror, splashing cold water on my face. 
and this complete distortion or alteration of my perception of time kicks in. I had never experienced anything like that in my life. It was like I was caught in some time loop or deja vu glitch, where I was reliving the same moment staring at myself in the mirror over and over again and couldn't break out of it and move on to the next moment. I really thought I broke my brain. I thought I was going to end up, you know, in a padded room or end up stuck in that repeating moment till the end of time. And that really messed with me. My perception of time and of the nature of my own consciousness or sanity hasn't quite been the same since. It exposed that there's a fragility there that I wasn't previously aware of, aside from, you know, some relatively less severe bad trips I've had on various psychedelics. And yeah, it's been really kind of humbling or unsettling in a way. But somehow I finally made it out of that bathroom. Everyone else was gathered in the living room having a good time. I snuck by and grabbed my coat off the back of a chair and went outside and got in my car. I was so out of my mind, I don't know if I would even have been able to drive if I wanted to, but my goal was to just get away and isolate myself in the safety of my car and try to ride this thing out. One of my female friends found, that was a lot of alliteration, one of my female friends found me, and I think they were afraid I was going to try to drive, so they led me back in. And somehow I was, you know, suddenly outside again, alternating between passing and, you know, passing out and puking. Another female friend who, more alliteration, had been out on the porch, spotted me lying on the wet asphalt. It had been raining out, and she led me back inside. I remember her dragging me up the porch stairs while I vomited over the railing. Hopefully I'm not making anyone else nauseous. Uh, you could tell she wanted to help me, but at the same time was really grossed out and, you know, perturbed by uh, me getting sick. Uh, can't blame her. She actually does home health care for a living, so hopefully she was at least, you know, somewhat inured to it. I ended up curled up under a living room table, occasionally lifting myself up to puke in a pot the hostess, a good friend of mine, you know, gave me. I passed out or slept for a couple of hours, and when I woke, um, I actually felt normal or close to it. And, you know, was very grateful to feel that way. Um, that's always an amazing feeling if you're having a really bad trip that you don't think will ever end. And then it does. And you find, you know, your way back to the world again. And it's like you've been reborn or made anew. And everyone was very cool and supportive and were glad I was feeling all right. And I was thankful for everyone, you know, taking care of me and putting up with me. So good lovey-dovey vibes at the end of the night. But yeah, that was probably the worst night of my life. Worst things have happened to me. I've had beloved pets die, you know, family die. But um, I say that was the worst night of my life due to how psychologically and physically harrowing it was. It was like my psyche was being torn apart. But let's finally now move on to this other event that I'm now including on my short worst nights of my life list. So I hit my head at work about six or seven weeks ago now maybe, and you guys know the story, been struggling with chronic migraines for over 20 years, yada yada yada, and they were pretty well controlled on this medication, amitriptyline I was taking, an old tricyclic antidepressant often prescribed for chronic migraines, but after I hit my head about three days later, the headaches and the nausea that comes with them started coming back. 
I had a telehealth appointment with my neurologist, told her what was going on, and she basically said it sounds like, you know, I gave myself a concussion and said that it's fairly common, I guess, for a patient who has chronic headaches, even headaches that are well controlled or managed with medication, to suddenly have a setback if they sustain a head injury or another head injury in my case. Mine first started decades ago after a couple of uh, bad car accidents. And at the time of my appointment, things were actually getting better. The headache seemed to be fading. And she said, let's give it a week and see if the trend continues. She didn't want to increase my dose of amitriptyline unless she had to and wanted to see if the situation would continue to resolve itself. And I was feeling better. Then I got my COVID booster. I got Moderna, same as my last two shots. And it hit me pretty hard the next day, which I think I already mentioned on the show. I felt like I was in the grip of a really bad flu and was pretty much bedridden for about a day and a half. And that's no big deal. I know that can happen with vaccines. But what bothered or concerned me was that after the temporary flu-like feeling brought on by the booster went away, I realized in its wake my migraines were flaring up, possibly worse than ever. I was reminded of what they felt like when I first started getting them all those years ago, you know, before they were treated. So maybe the booster triggered some kind of inflammatory response that caused the migraines to flare up. I don't know. Uh, so they raised my amitriptyline dosage by 10 milligrams and prescribed me some anti-nausea meds. And so here we finally get to the night in question. Now, I've known for a long time that one of the most common side effects of amitriptyline is constipation, but personally, that's never really been an issue. Well, until I learned the hard way that the anti-nausea meds they prescribe me also cause constipation. And in case you're wondering, the two anti-memetics or anti-nausea medicines I've been taking are Compazine and is it Zofrin or Zofrin? The difference being, I guess, that Zofrin, as I understand it, tends to, you know, be milder and safer in a sense. Although even, uh, even that, I think I recently read, it can supposedly elevate your heart rate if you take too much and may or may not potentially cause birth defects. Uh, whereas Compazine is technically an antipsychotic, but it's also prescribed for nausea and vomiting and quote-unquote non-psychotic anxiety as well, which is pretty interesting. And I think I read that Zofrin was actually first developed to help cancer patients with the nausea induced by chemo, I believe. And Compazine is uh, actually administered intravenously, often along with Benadryl, I believe, uh, to emergency room patients suffering from severe migraine-related nausea. And this is kind of concerning, and this is regarding Compazine. From what I've read, people who aren't taking it for psychosis or schizophrenia, uh, people taking it instead for nausea or, once again, non-psychotic anxiety, should supposedly watch out how much or how often they take it and try to avoid taking it on a long-term basis because it's basically a dopamine scrubber. It lowers dopamine levels, supposedly, which is, you know, quite possibly why it's uh, effective for psychotic disorders like schizophrenia. It's thought that too much dopamine, and this actually reminds me of a college uh, psychology course, I think it was, that I took, where, you know, at the beginning of the course, we learned about all the, you know, the basic uh, neurotransmitters, but it's thought that 
too much dopamine might somehow play a role in psychotic disorders like schizophrenia, while too little dopamine is supposedly associated with neuromuscular conditions like Parkinson's, etc. So the fear is that if you take it too long, you know, or take it long term, you could possibly end up with irreversible neuromuscular issues like tardive uh, dyskinesia, etc. My own neurologist suggested that I don't take it quote-unquote chronically and only use it here and there if I really need it, uh, but I have to admit I kind of like the way it makes me feel. I had a bottle of it that was prescribed to me, you know, over a year ago while I was experiencing bad nausea while trying to switch medicines, but I never took it because the idea of taking an antipsychotic kind of freaked me out. It sounded pretty hardcore. And maybe it's the anxiolytic effects, but I felt pretty good on it, a bit calmer, worrying about stuff less, and I don't know if it was just my imagination, but I even seemed to have a bit more mental clarity on it, like I was experiencing less of that amitriptyline brain fog, but both of them, you know, Compazine and Zofrin, uh, seem to do a decent job of fighting nausea. It's not like a miracle cure, the nausea might still break through here and there, but there are these longer nausea-free stretches that I gratefully experience, you know, well on them. But unfortunately, once again, as I learned the hard way, they both can also cause constipation. So I'm taking amitriptyline, which on its own can cause constipation, and as I mentioned, my dose was recently increased. Then on top of that, I was going back and forth between these two other drugs, which are also known to cause constipation. And thankfully, I've been, you know, feeling somewhat better and I haven't, need, you know, haven't been needing to rely on the anti-nausea meds as much. But at my worst, you know, I was gobbling several Compazine a day. And so the weekend before last, I think it was, uh, I was starting to feel pretty good, pretty motivated. And despite the fact that my computer or computer had recently, you know, crapped the bed, I was going to try to get a good night's sleep, wake up bright and early the next day and try to record an episode on my iPad. But that never happened. I was up all night fighting the worst case of constipation I'd ever experienced in my life. And even though I have an irreverent sense of humor and a history of sharing too much, you know, embarrassing inf information on the show, in general, I've never really been comfortable talking about bowel movements. It's kind of where I draw the line. But this experience was so intense and crazy, you know, I felt compelled to talk about it. And looking back at my life with all the drinking, the terrible diet, I'm surprised I've never had trouble with constipation before, uh, but never an issue until this fateful night in question. So I was getting ready to go to bed and suddenly felt like I had to use the bathroom. And I can't believe I'm actually getting into this, but I sat on the toilet, felt like I had to go, but couldn't. It's hard to describe, but it's like I was stuck at that midway point of evacuating your bowels or where you feel like you're, can't believe it, one final or good push away from finishing, but nothing was happening. And so I would try, nothing. Pace around a while, try again, nothing. My bowels again, you know, can't believe I'm talking about this, were aching. That's a, I think that's a static X, um, lyric. Stack X has a song called Love Dump. But anyway, um, I, I should actually use that as the background music for this episode. But anyway, my bowels were aching because I couldn't go. And then on top of that, it was like muscles I didn't even know I had were aching from the repeated effort and straining. And once in a while, I'd manage to fall asleep very briefly, but then I'd wake right back up because of the discomfort. 
You know how sometimes your body will just kind of behave instinctively? It got so bad that at one point, without even really thinking about it, I noticed I was kind of stripping off my clothes and just kind of fell or crawled down from the toilet onto the bathroom floor as if my body wanted to draw some kind of relief from the, you know, the feel of the coolness of the tile on my skin. Uh, it's so embarrassing, as if this wasn't already embarrassing, uh, by... <laughs> <laughs> I should not. I Don't worry, I didn't soil the, the uh, towel. But I laid out a towel and got on my back and found myself instinctively getting into this position like I was in a Lamaze class or trying to give birth, which I guess in a sense I was to a fudge baby. But yeah, off the rails, I know. But yeah, I'm, I'm lying on my back, had my feet on the ground and my hips up, uh, you know, pushing and breathing. And... um. I would think something was starting to happen, so I'd run back to the toilet, nothing, back down on the ground, back to the toilet, and once, you know, in a while, I'd catch a glimpse of myself in the mirror, and I've been letting my hair and beard grow out, so I'd catch a glimpse of this panting naked savage in the mirror and think, how'd I get here? What happened to my life? And this was going on for hours, all night, finally around 6 or 7 in the morning after pacing around, shifting positions, hugging the washer machine and roaring like an animal. Uh, it was like the transformation scene from American Werewolf in London. But finally it happened. I'm somewhere in between 5'10 and 5'11, currently about 179 pounds. But what came out of me looked like it should have come out of Andre the Giant. I didn't know if I should put pants on it and send it to school or call an exorcist. I, you know, I thought the thing was going to rip me in half, but I survived. That's my harrowing tale. Applause, please. Applause. But I guess why those medications, both amitriptyline, which I take for my migraines, and the antimimetic drugs like Zofran and Compazine, why they cause constipation is that they tend to be anticholinergic. They tend to dry you out, not enough water in your lower intestine or whatever. And then they can also weaken your ability to contract the muscles necessary to move things along down there. So kind of a double whammy. Uh, but that was a horrible experience, and I've been trying to keep the anti-nausea drugs to a minimum since. Uh, it sucks how it seems like there's always got to be a trade-off. You've got depression, we've got a pill for that, but you might have some trouble in the bedroom. Nauseous, we've got a pill for that too, but you might not be able to crap. Uh, even though I'm a non-believer, a skeptic, stuff like that kind of tempts me to think that, you know, the universe has a sixth sense of humor, or like how George Costanza's therapist says, I thought you didn't believe in God, and he says, I do for the bad things, you know? But to be fair, as I think I mentioned before, I've actually noticed that the old tricyclic antidepressants, for me at least, seem to have fewer sexual side effects, and amitriptyline is in that class. But it's weird. Different antidepressants have different sexual side effects. I've noticed that on amitriptyline. My, well, you know, we've come this far. Why hold back? I, th I think we're already well beyond the TMI line. Uh, but I've, you know, but I've noticed my erections are pretty damn good on uh, amitriptyline. But there's some loss of sensation. While with other drugs, it can kind of be the opposite, where you notice a drop in the quality of your erections, but the sensitivity or sensation is still pretty good. And sometimes it's a bit of all of those, you know. I think that the loss of sensation or numbness is referred to as genital anesthesia, as opposed to anorgasmia, which is where you're unable to achieve an orgasm. 
And I'm a big proponent of antidepressants and what they can do for people, but there's some scary stories out there of people experiencing persistent genital anesthesia or other forms of sexual dysfunction long after discontinuing the use of their antidepressant. Uh, me personally, whenever I've tried to get off of an antidepressant, I've noticed my libido and sexual functioning kind of comes back full force, but I could see how it might be plausible that there could be, you know, long lasting effects for some people. Brain chemistry plays a surprisingly large role in sexual arousal. And so if you're on a medication that messes with the you know, with that balance, maybe the long-term wiring gets changed a bit. It reminds me of how, uh, you know, the party drug MDMA ecstasy floods the brain with serotonin and most antidepressants are serotonergic. Uh, you ever try having sex on ecstasy, especially ecstasy, alcohol, well on an antidepressant, floppy noodle city. Uh, but enough with that stuff. I'm envisioning longtime listeners being like, is he really talking about his health problems again? So let's move on. Hashtag fudge baby. So I should probably do at least one news story so the whole episode's not just me vetching about bowel movements and medications. So the perennial war on Christmas. People talk about Afghanistan and Iraq, but you don't know the horror of war until you've looked into the eyes of a dying elf impaled on a candy cane. But on a serious note, and I don't know if he coined the term or not, but this quote-unquote war on Christmas thing has been around since back when Bill O'Reilly was still the top dog over at Fox News. And I've always found it absurd. I think I remember a few instances, in fairness, that were maybe worthy of debate, like schools, you know, banning or avoiding the word Christmas because they didn't want to seem like they had a Christian bias, things like that. But this general fear-mongering idea that secular types and big corporations are trying to erase Christmas, or at least the use of the word Christmas, and that's up to good Christian folks to fight for it lest it disappear, I think it's basically asinine and frankly manipulative. I mean, do you really think people like Bill O'Reilly, Tucker Carlson, or Trump really think Christmas is in peril of disappearing? And in the case of Trump, I don't even know if he's even actually a conservative. I think he's more of an opportunist. But in fairness to Bill O'Reilly and certain conservative pundits, I think they may honestly, on some level, see a trend of growing secularization that bothers them. But I think it's also about hyping things up and generating outrage for ratings. And it's funny, this whole thing about Christmas or the word Christmas disappearing or secular types having an aversion to Christmas or the word Christmas. Uh, I'm secular for the sake of simplicity. You can call me an atheist, although technically or, you know, more specifically, uh, I guess I would say I'm an agnostic atheist, uh, which I think it's safe to say many atheists are. And I love Christmas. I love celebrating Christmas. I love Christmas music. Uh, if someone says Merry Christmas to me, I smile and say it back. And oddly, I don't really have any atheist friends in quote-unquote real life, and by that I mean people who openly identify as atheist. And I have plenty of online atheist friends who I consider real friends. By real life, I mean out and about in the physical, you know, world or whatever. But yeah, I don't really have any offline openly atheistic friends. Uh, and part of that might be due to the fact, and this is, uh, you know, a subject for a whole nother episode, which I may have already done in the past, but the way atheist is still kind of a dirty word. I think maybe it stops people from wanting to associate themselves with the label. And there may also, part of it may also be an ignorance of the fact that there can also be 
an overlap between agnosticism and atheism. Um, but my real life friends are largely secular people who don't identify with or practice any organized religion and who are either apolitical or left leaning. And so even though they don't go in for organized religion, they may still have airy fairy ideas about spirits or quote unquote energy or claim to some vague notion of some kind of higher power. So maybe what polls sometimes refer to as nuns, not N-U-N, but N-O. N-E, people who aren't religious but aren't necessarily atheists either. And it's disheartening, but I found that even among these otherwise secular, tolerant, and open-minded types, some who I consider my friends, you know, and this is what I was just touching on, if you openly say you're an atheist at a party or whatever, they get this sour look on their face like they just smelled a fart. A lot of toilet humor tonight. Very out of character for me. But sadly, for some reason, the word atheist has you know, unfairly become very demonized and loaded. I think part of it is it's just natural to have some anxiety in the face of one's own mortality, and no one wants to think that when we or the people we love die, it's just lights out, you know? People get a sense of comfort from the idea that there may be something more, that death isn't necessarily the end, that there's perhaps some benign force out there looking out for us. So they hear the word atheist and they meet it almost with revulsion, which is a shame because I think most atheists are principled people. In fact, it may be the case that they're atheists because they are principled and want to know what's actually true instead of just settling for some comforting fairy tale. Uh, I like to think that's the case with me. But yeah, I can literally count on one hand how many self-proclaimed atheists I've met out and about in the real world. Twice at parties I just happened to bump into or have a brief exchange with a stranger who happened to be an atheist. I remember one time, it was actually pretty annoying, I was sitting on a back porch at a party drinking, and this stranger is also there, and the subject of atheism had been broached somehow. Before you know it, he's lecturing me about atheism, talking to me about Dawkins and Hitchens as if I'd never heard of them, and I can't even get a word in edgewise to tell him that I host an atheist podcast. And then the other time, it was just this kind of down-to-earth, blue-collar, working-class guy. I don't know if he openly identified as an atheist, to be honest, but this guy who just happened to be skeptical of, you know, God and religion, etc. And then I did have this female acquaintance I met through other friends. We were probably close enough to be considered friends. We hung out at a number of parties and get-togethers. She was, I guess you would say, ethnically Jewish, but was an outspoken atheist. I remember one time at a party, she was arguing with this other guy in the friend group. He was trying to put forward his own airy-fairy ideas about spirituality, and she looks over at me and says, You're the only other atheist here. Aren't you going to jump in or say something? It was kind of funny. Uh, I think she went on to become a teacher or a professor, but I haven't seen her in years now. She had a falling out with her best friend, who was also a member of the friend group, and just kind of disappeared. Not Nancy Grace Missing Girl disappeared, but went on, you know, with her life. I think last I heard she was in Vermont. Uh, That's not borderline doxing, is it? I don't think so. But anyway, the reason I went off on that long-winded tangent is to get around to making the point that 
Most of my friends are secular, at least in the sense that they don't embrace organized religion. Most of them aren't practicing Christians. And yet, like myself, they love Christmas, throw Christmas parties, we greet each other saying Merry Christmas. There's actually a Jewish couple in that friend group, and they're not observant at all that I know of. It's funny, the husband is Russian Jewish, I believe, and he's well over six feet and a real kind of rough around the edges, blue collar kind of guy, runs his own roofing business. And the wife is of Ashkenazi descent. She's a nurse. I don't want to divulge, you know, too much about them. But prior to COVID, they used to throw Christmas parties, which they referred to as Christmas parties, complete with a tree and uh, a secret Santa gift exchange. And they have little kids now, and I think the tree and the presents have become a thing for the kids. Too. And so even though Christ is right in the name, Christ Mass, I think for many people it's just, you know, it kind of functions as a festive midwinter celebration, a time to get together with friends and family and exchange gifts. And I remember several years ago, I think a number of high-profile atheists, including Richard Dawkins, posted pictures of themselves with their quote-unquote Christmas trees. So there is this kind of secular, celebratory aspect to it that's kind of accessible to anyone. And that's not to take anything away from religious people. It, you know, I think it's up to the individual to decide how much Christ they want in their Christmas, you know? But I remember there was this Christmas documentary I watched a long time ago, and there was a historian they interviewed for the show that made a great point that's always stuck with me. He said, and I'm paraphrasing, that people who suggest that we need to put the Christ back in Christmas make the mistake of assuming that it was ever completely about Christ in the first place. Um, and they went into how in the Middle Ages there were almost two Christmases, you could say. There was the sober Christmas of church observance, etc. And then there was the raucous Christmas of the people, a kind of wild, drunken, carnivalesque celebration that spilled out onto the streets and to our modern eyes, you know, might look like something more akin to Mardi Gras or Halloween than Christmas. And of course, there's the Nordic pagan influence of Yule, etc. And if you go back into antiquity, there were a number of popular cults that were imported into the Greco-Roman world, including that of the solar deity Mithras. It was supposedly thought that Mithras was born on the 25th of December, and the church had a habit or custom of instead of banning pagan customs or holidays or traditions, of assimilating and Christianizing them. And so that's one theory of how Christ's birthday came to be observed on December 25th. And I was actually just re-watching that documentary I mentioned. I believe it was a History Channel documentary entitled Christmas Unwrapped, or something like that. And renowned religious historian Elaine Pagels is in it, and she cites the Mithras thing as the reason you know Christ's birthday is observed or celebrated on the 25th. But one thing I've learned about history is that often the deeper you dig, the more uncertain you become, because it seems like there's always these alternative or contesting theories and sources, etc. But I think the Mithras December 25th explanation is widely accepted, and I think it's known as the quote-unquote history of religions hypothesis, but there's also the calculation hypothesis, which suggests that the December 25th date may have been the result of calculations done by the early church, possibly counting nine months forward from an earlier Christian celebration held on the 25th of March. It gets pretty convoluted and confused, but in general, solstice or midwinter celebrations were nothing new. 
One example is the ancient Roman holiday Saturnalia, which took place in mid-December and may have influenced Christmas to some degree as well. The point being, once again, that claiming we need to make Christmas about Christ again is to erroneously suggest that it was ever a holy or entirely Christian holiday in the first place. If you really want to make people's heads explode, tell them about how in the 17th century the Puritans actually banned Christmas because they found it too frivolous, etc. In a reversal of the modern status quo, shops stayed open on Christmas and churches were closed. So it took me forever to get here, but let's play a clip of Mike Huckabee sucking up to Donald Trump as they discuss the war on Christmas and how Trump supposedly made it safe to say Merry Christmas again. And apologies ahead of time if the clip sounds a bit choppy. I yanked it from a TYT segment, and that's, you know, how it was edited. America had gone through a long period where people quit saying Merry Christmas. Right. It was all happy holidays. You deliberately changed that. That's and true. openly said, Merry Christmas, we're going to say it again. Fact, was it was part, part of my campaign, my campaign. Yeah. The country had started with this woke, I guess, uh, a little bit before that. Yeah. And it was embarrassing for stores to say Merry Christmas. You'd see these big chains, they want your money, but they don't want to say Merry Christmas. And they'd use reds and they'd use whites and snow, but they wouldn't say Christmas. And when I started campaigning, this was in 2015, when I started campaigning, I said, you're going to say Merry Christmas again. And now people are saying it, what I was doing. And so I would say it all the time during that period that we want them to say Merry Christmas. Don't shop at stores that don't say Merry Christmas. And I'll tell you, we brought it back very quickly. You really did. Very inspirational music in the background there. And my favorite part is right at the end there where Mike Huckabee's like, yeah, you really did. Ironically, I think that Trump may actually believe his own claim that he made it safe to say Merry Christmas again, because facts don't really seem to matter to him. The narrative that flatters his ego and is most expedient is the narrative he embraces or goes with. But does Mike Huckabee really believe that there was a time when people couldn't say Merry Christmas or they stopped and Trump made it safe to utter the phrase again? What alternate universe are they living in? Once again, despite being a non-believer, I absolutely love Christmas, so this doesn't bother me, but every year, usually somewhere between the end of Halloween and the approach of Thanksgiving, every supermarket I enter starts, you know, piping Christmas music through the store speakers. They have seasonal items and end caps chock full of Christmas candy, and I mean packaging that clearly says Christmas. I've still been trying to avoid animal products, and I know Lil Debbie's aren't made of meat, but, you know, like milk or whatever. Uh, but I still notice my perennial favorites like Lil Debbie's quote-unquote Christmas tree brownies, Lil Debbie's quote-unquote Christmas tree cakes, Brock's Christmas nougat. Nougat. It's nougat, right? Why'd that sound weird to me? Uh, greeting cards and wrapping paper that clearly say Merry Christmas, little ceramic nativity scenes, etc., etc. When I'm at the checkout, sometimes they say Merry Christmas and I say it right back. Other times they say Happy Holidays. Who cares, you know? If they say Happy Holidays, I assume it's probably because the phrase Happy Holidays encompasses several major holidays that are clustered together. Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's. Another reason a person might opt to say 
happy holidays is that they might not know whether or not the person they're talking to is of another faith. And happy holidays also covers things like Hanukkah and Ramadan, etc., etc. And I think I already covered this on the show in the past, but the phrase happy holidays has literally been in use in the United States for over a century. And I believe the similar expression, season's greetings, has been around since the 1920s and has even been featured on White House Christmas cards, including that of Dwight D. Eisenhower. So at the end of the day, you know, much ado about nothing, and Trump made it safe to say something that people were already free to say and never stopped saying in the first place. Well done. Merry Christmas.